Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I will be your host for the next few minutes to talk about Peanuts, Charles Schultz, and all things Charlie Brown, Linus, Lucy, and Snoopy too. So sit back and enjoy. Season's greetings, Blockhead listeners. Welcome to another edition of your favorite podcast. Well, I don't know if it's your favorite podcast, but I hope it's one of the many podcasts that you consider worth a listen every now and again. <laughs> it's a long jump from favorite pod- podcast to one I hope you will, well, please give it a listen once a, once every blue moon. That tells you a little bit about my psychology. (laughs) Anyway, thanks for stopping by. And uh, here we are in December uh, 2019. We are on the heels of a new decade. Wow. Unbelievable. And uh, 2020. That's crazy. Uh, It just it reminds me of a letter I have in my collection back in the days when we used to write letters from an old friend of mine at art school and uh, written in in uh, December of 1979 wondering what 1980 was going to bring. That turned out to be a pretty tough year. But um, yeah, I, that's close in my memory and it's weird to be here at uh, in December 2019 doing this and saying hello to all of you. I had no idea this was something I wanted to do uh, <laughs> back then. I thought I'd be flying around in a jetpack by now. <laughs> But anyway, here we are. It's December. Uh, We've had our first big snowstorm here and uh, last week. And it's appropriately white all over the place. And uh, Bing Crosby would be happy. But I'm happy you're here. And more than that, I'm happy that Jason Cooper is here. Jason Cooper is uh, one of the members of the Schultz Creative Studios, one of those folks who keeps the the, uh, memory and the characters alive in the public consciousness and uh, ensures quality control. And also, uh, Jason has been one of the major writers for uh, all kinds of variety of Peanuts literary products, if you will. Uh, We've seen uh, graphic novels. There are three graphic novels written by, well, with this new one, there are three graphic novels written by Jason Cooper. Uh, We've got Where Beagles Dare, which came out uh, several years ago, followed up by Race for Your Life, Charlie Brown. And now the brand new Snoopy, A Beagle of Mars, uh, is available to the public, um, I think, as we speak right now. And what's more exciting is that Jason is here to talk to us about that, about the um, the book itself, how it came together, uh, what it's about, uh, without giving anything away. No spoilers, uh, I hope, anyway. He, he lays it all out for us, talks about the process, talks about what goes on at Schultz Creative Studios, and he gives us uh, some insight into... Uh, the movie-making process and discussing his career at Warner Brothers. So that's pretty fascinating, too, just as kind of auxiliary information and and entertainment that I think you will enjoy. Jason's got some stories to tell about his work at Warner Brothers, and it's a lot of fun. So I think you're going to enjoy this episode. I know you're going to enjoy this episode. I really enjoyed talking to Jason. He's a great guy and a really humble guy and uh, also I think a really talented guy and he is he is really one of those people who is taking care of Charlie Brown and the Peanuts gang and making sure 
that they are cared for now and in the future. I think we owe him and the Schultz Creative Studios a lot. So uh, anyway, I will catch up with you at the end of the episode. For right now, it's Jason Cooper and myself in conversation. Hey there, Jason. Welcome to Blockhead. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to have you on the show. This is terrific. Another member of the Schultz Creative Studio and the author of the most recent Peanuts graphic novels over the last couple of years, right? You've That's you've right. Uh, you've got a new one dropping in what? Oh, is it this week or next week? I believe um, it's next week. Next week, Snoopy, a Beagle of Mars, uh, hits bookstores everywhere. Is that correct? That is correct. So this will be. How many graphic novels have you done now for uh, Boom Studios? Um, is it three? This will be the third. We just wrapped up the script on a fourth, I believe I can say. Yeah, this will be the third one. The second one was a was sort of a um, reimagining of Race for Your Life, Charlie Brown. So right. Mm-hmm. You've done with Robert Pope, who did the illustrations on this one, as well yes. as. The intro story uh, featuring Woodstock and Gang by um, uh, Vicki Scott did the exactly. uh, illustrations. You already answered one of my questions by saying script, because I was going to ask, you know, what comes first in this case? Is it Marvel method, you know, drawings first and then the script, or is it the script first? And I think you answered that question. Is that how it works with whomever is penciling the work, Robert or Vicki? Uh, you provide them a script and is their dialogue back and forth and... Yes, exactly. That's how it is. I I tend to write everything in final draft, just given my background. Uh, so I write in final draft and then, you know, Lex Fajardo and I discuss the script and edits and we go over, go over everything with Paige Braddock. And once we are set on the script, we like we, in this case, hand it over to the incomparable Robert Pope, who's uh-huh. amazing. And, uh, you know, he gives us some input, too. He's like, I think this scene will work. This scene won't. And uh you know, I'm used to writing, you know, plays and screenplays and things like that. So a lot of times he and Lex are great at giving me notes as to like, you know, this might work in, you know, if this was a TV show or something. But this scene here might not play as well in a comic book. So we kind of go over it and rewrite some things. So everybody, everybody has a lot of input, which is nice. It's a big collaborative experience. How long is the process for putting together one of the books? Uh, you know, what kind of you know, period of time does it take to put together Race for Your Life or Where Beagles Dare or A Beagle on Mars? How how long is that process? Well, uh, usually it's about a six-month process, I think, is sort of where we land. If we have more time, great. It usually takes about a month uh, for me to write a script, cause, you know, doing our, our other jobs here at Creative Associates as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, we we write a, you know, 90 page script 70 page script and uh and then we edit it and go back and forth and then hand it off to the artist to do the pencils which is the longest the pencils and the coloring take the, the longest amount of time so right right uh, yeah you can you can see there's a great amount of care uh taken with with pencils and with colors colors are beautiful yeah. hannah white did the colors for uh beagle of mars and it's amazing yeah, they're they're really rich, very very full, uh, and so uh, the creative team changes a little bit each time. Have you settled in with Robert on the lead stories and Vicky on the supplementary stuff, or because I know Beagles Dare, 
uh, Vicky did the pencils for that. That's right. Vicky did the pencils for that. Uh, you know, I really just think it depends on the artists themselves workload. Like if, uh, uh you know, Lex has a, a stable of folks he likes to go through and, uh, depending on their workload at the time or, you know, what they can or can't do or is kind of how they decide. Um, we'd actually spoken to Robert about this a little bit when he was working on uh, race for your life. So he, he, I think in the back of his brain, he cleared a little time and he's, he's great to work with. He's amazing. Yeah. Robert's got you know, really quite uh, formidable skills as well as an exci- encyclopedic uh, knowledge of uh, all mm-hmm. peanuts lore. Exactly. And yeah. Vicki Scott is great too. She, she, like you mentioned, the little short story that's mm-hmm. at the beginning of Beagle of Mars is actually a little comic book we did for Comic-Con two years ago. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. In my brain, it was sort of the prequel to Beagle of Mars. Well, and I guess it folds into it really, really well. Yeah. Um, so all of the accidents that happen at Mission Control <laughs> all seem to play a role in uh, in Snoopy's uh, adventure. Yeah. So tell me about A Beagle of Mars, uh, where the idea came from, uh, how you decided on this topic, and, and how you decided upon the plot where you took it because it's got some surprising twists and turns in it it starts off with a science fiction story yeah we can't well i can't give too much of the plot away yet until you know okay read it but uh yeah we well we had been working with nasa a lot lately on some products here at creative associates and we've done some animated content with them recently uh about stem content basically science technology engineering and math we uh, consulted on some new animation they did for that and have been creating products and books that sort of tie in with NASA and the space initiative and everything. And we thought it would be fun to do a sort of sci-fi story that, you know, doesn't, you know, technically fall into the STEM category, but would sort of tie in with all the space stuff we've been doing lately. And uh, Lex and I were kicking around ideas and everything that we work on comes from the comic strip, comes from Schultz's work. And there was a, a particular Sunday strip that I read and showed Lex. And I was like, Lex, I think this is sort of, this is sort of a fun story we can tell. We wanted to feature Snoopy quite a bit. And, uh, and this idea came from just the Schultz's Sunday strip and the environment that was there and the sort of mood we wanted to set for the story we wanted to tell. Yeah, it was, so, it was fun. What was that um, Sunday strip? What what era did it come from, and what was what was the context? It uh, it came from the '80s, and okay. uh, it involved a character we knew we wanted to feature at some point, and also it was just sort of a sort of a melancholic strip, honestly. You know, discussing like the decisions we make and how we get there, and how we suffer from those decisions. So it wasn't necessarily, you know, a, a Snoopy uh, as as an astronaut kind of strip or or uh, a Snoopy in needles or something. It was just the subject of the strip was what intrigued you. And that. Right. Yeah. The subject of the strip and the thinking of the story we could build around that. Oh, OK. OK. So and it grew from there. That's really mm-hmm. interesting. And that that in concert with you know, working with NASA, 
and that must be a thrill to work with people from from NASA. Their their concerns must be very different from maybe your concerns. I mean, it sounds like you've got a lot you've got to fold into the story and a lot of things you've got to juggle there. You've got to juggle the characters and, and uh, fidelity to Charles Schultz's work. And at the same time, you've got some of these other concerns. This was the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. And so there's a lot of that going on. So in some sense, this is kind of a celebration uh, of that. So you're talking to people with sometimes perhaps very different uh, agendas, perhaps. Is that yeah. Yeah, luckily with this graphic novel, it was more, we sort of had creative license to kind of do what we wanted to do. But um, working with NASA on a lot of the Simon & Schuster books we've been doing, and we did a little uh, collaboration with McDonald's uh, a few months ago. We did some books for them, which were in conjunction with NASA. So we had to fill them with uh, space facts and technology and try to build stories around that. And NASA is very concerned about you know, making sure things are portrayed exactly how they are in space and getting every fact right. I, we had to go over exactly how much fuel an SLS rocket can hold. And oh, Lord. <laughs> if you get one fact wrong, and I was sort of like, you know, they're just going to read these with French fries. I don't think it matters that much. But NASA's like, no, it has to be exactly right. Like, okay. You're, you're dealing with scientists, and yeah. uh, right? So it's all different kettle of fish. Yeah, you know, uh, so... Um, so do do they have like a input on like for example the depictions of Mars and the universe that are in the comic or is that something you have plenty of poetic license with? We had poetic license on that in the in the <laughs> in the novel, but in, in the books we didn't. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, I wish I'd seen those. I don't. I don't ever go to McDonald's, so I I missed out on that opportunity. Uh, I know it's uh, I, I I'm un- in that sense it's very un-American. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure they're online somewhere. We yeah, also did a we did a little uh, Simon Schuster early reader called Shoot for the Moon Snoopy, which oh, was that's... also in conjunction with NASA. So that's okay, facts as well. And it, is Robert uh, Pope drawing all of these, or uh, are they going back and forth? Uh, they're different artists. I think Tom Brennan did the art for the McDonald's really? books and. Okay. It was either Vicky or Scott Geralds who did the, the Simon & Schuster book. And you're writing all of them. Is that the case? I'm writing a lot of them. I'm writing the graphic novels and a lot of the books we do with Simon & Schuster, too. They have an in-house team, but if if they want to do something with us through Creative Associates, it's me. Yeah. yeah that's a lot of... A lot of uh peanuts writing to do and and so and you came from of course working on licensed characters before at warner brothers you were there Mm -hmm. for a number of years right and we'll we'll get into that but i'm curious how you know had you been in in your mind imagining peanuts stories way back in the day and and had all these plots or were you segued into this gradually you know you start writing one book and then two and then three or, or you know how did it work and how did it you know um familiarity with the characters and all of that how did that all develop i mean because i can imagine it could be well it's pretty darn daunting right you know to all of a sudden now you're going to be writing charles schultz's characters and i mean that's something pretty big to live up to so yeah it is a little different from say warner brothers characters that have been written by a a lot of different people and were in fact you know created in part to to serve a lot of different creative talents right? right so you know, now you're working on something that was very, very personal. It must have been kind of, uh, I know how I would feel. It'd be kind of, oh my gosh, you know, intimidated by the whole process. Yeah, it's 
it's kind of a mix of honored and intimidated <laughs> uh, every day. I mean, luckily, I grew up, I read the comic strip every right. day in the newspaper growing up. Uh, and I always loved the characters. I remember, it's funny, I used to go to yard sales with my folks. I would, one of the first things I bought was an old Peanuts reprint book full of the 50 strips. And I would stand up in like third grade and read them to my class. And <laughs> I would cut out the comic strips and put them on my door. And, uh, and honestly, when I left Warner Brothers, I didn't know where I would end up. We just knew we wanted to uh, wind up in this area. And I was, you know, I knew that I could write from anywhere. And I luckily met Paige Braddock, who saw an opening here, which actually wasn't for staff writer. It was for doing, you know, a lot of art approvals that we do here at the studio, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for product that comes in, Peanuts product and everything. And, uh, and at the time, they were doing a boom, like a bi-monthly boom comic comic series which vicky scott also worked on and a lot of us uh and i sort of weaseled my way into that writer's room <laughs> and uh wrote some comic book stories and then at the time of the movie the movie that came in 2015 they wanted to do a uh, snoopy red baron story which turned out to be uh where beagles dare right and they're like well cooper you think you can write why don't you try this? So <laughs> that's kind of how it happened. So, okay. So you had some, some test runs uh, mm -hmm. and some early stuff, and then you, you were kind of thrown into where Beagles dare, which uh, is, um, is my favorite of the three so far. Uh, I really enjoy that book a lot. Um, okay. It's, it's, uh, it's, well, I just love the Red Baron, so that's yeah, my thing. I love those stories. I mean, I read every Red Baron strip over and over and over again. And, that one was great too because you could put so many of Schultz's words into it and the dialogue in it, and it, uh, you know, it really helped because there's built-in action and adventure there already, you know. Oh yeah, and and it also hews very closely to Schultz's original stuff, both in terms of the look of the strip or the mm -hmm. book and and the coloring calls to mind, you know, the great pumpkin Charlie Brown and and uh, and so there there is this as that aspect of it that I really responded to, but also I'm just such a big fan of the Red Baron and Yeah, I love Snoopy and the Red Baron. It's my favorite. Mm -hmm. I yeah, it's they're very special strips. I don't know why. Of all the characters Snoopy plays, that's the one that always appeals to me the most and uh, yeah. I so, so it's natural, but also the title, uh, is from one of my absolute favorite, uh, action movies from the sixties. And it's funny to see a 21st century book referring to this old, old movie that um, I can't, can't imagine kids certainly have any knowledge of, nor do very few of my own contemporaries know, know of that yeah. film. Are you an aficionado? <laughs> I'm not, unfortunately not an aficionado, but I've, I've seen some, but I have to credit Art Roach for coming up with that name because when we were writing on, writing on it, I was, I don't know. It's like, what are we going to call this? I have no idea. And he's like, we're Beagles Dare. It's like, yeah, that's perfect. It's an old, <laughs> Alistair McLean was an adventure writer who wrote uh, stories like The Guns of Navarone and for a period of, in, of time in the 60s, he was like the John Grisham of World War II movies, um, mm -hmm. you know, in, in, in that sense. He provided fodder for Hollywood. And, and so one movie's got Gregory Peck and, you know, then the, Where Eagles Dare is Richard Burton and Clint Eastwood. And, uh, and it's got some great music and some great scenery of the, of the Alps and, and 
stuff and you know the drama of a castle that has to be invaded it's pretty exciting it's a pretty exciting movie at least it was to me when i was a kid anyway it's neither here I'm nor there yeah it's 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 you know if you're in interested in seeing an, an action it's good for like a snowy day like today is here in in upstate new york um, when you're locked in and there's no place to go and you know it's dated no doubt about it it's dated but it, it's it's a good good world war ii action adventure yarn so yeah anyway uh what does that have to do with anything so <laughs> Um, except the title, but anyway, I enjoyed that book a lot and, uh, I've enjoyed all of them uh, a good deal and, uh, they're a whole lot of fun. And one of the tasks here is to bring new readers to the material in a way. And so who are you writing for when you, you sit down? Is there an age group, a demographic that you're aiming for when you, uh, you, you know, work on these books? I'm sure, I'm sure the publishers maybe have a demographic in mind. I, I don't personally like I have I have two boys I have a six-year-old and a nine-year-old and so I always in the back of my head want to write something that I think they would like to read but also to Schultz's credit he was a kind of writer who an artist who didn't really talk down to his audience he left a lot of words in there you may need to look up or not understand (laughs) or have questions about and uh I try to do that sometimes as well it's trickier now when there's more cooks in the kitchen definitely um but I just want to write something that hopefully everyone will enjoy, but also mm-hmm. have kids. You know, it's important. It's important for me that these characters stay out in the ether. I think yeah. these days, just characters that have this depth of range of emotion and, you know, it's not always about winning. Sometimes it's about perseverance, stuff like that. It's these are good messages to keep out there. And I want to do my best to to do that. Well, you certainly do, and they're a lot of fun, and uh, and there's a a liveliness and an energy to the writing that I really I think is distinctly yours, and uh, I think that's nice. It's you know you're bringing something new to the to the uh, to the table, really. Oh, well, thank you. With these books, so far you've done then two books that feature Snoopy. Is mm-hmm. Snoopy your favorite character to work on, or or? Do you see yourself with other leads in uh, upcoming graphic novels or is Snoopy going to be the guy because he, you know, Snoopy's the face of peanuts in a lot of ways and and um, and sells me. I don't know if Snoopy sells the best. I'm just guessing. Uh, well, he definitely sort of internationally has become the face of the brands. Definitely. But he's you know, he's not necessarily my favorite character to write. And uh, it's funny you should mention the other characters. There will be. A, a different lead in an upcoming graphic novel that we're working on. Oh, uh, can I get a well. scoop? <laughs> <laughs> who, who is it? <laughs> is it somebody yeah, we know and love? It's, it's it's someone you know and love, I hope. And, you know, I love writing for all the characters. Like, I personally, I think I key into Charlie Brown a bit more because, you know, being a, being a chunky youth who could never get up the curse to talk to somebody, I sort of key, <laughs> sort of key into that motion a little bit uh but snoopy is definitely fun because you know he can he can think in graphic novels and books that you don't always see in the animation yeah Uh, yeah and that's fun you can get more into his head you don't have to just fill it with hijinks but right i think one of the challenges of of any of the long form adaptations or original books is to open up that world and because you really do have to open it up in ways 
that are more akin to the animation than the original comic strip in a lot of ways. Do you find that that's a challenge? Well, it it is a challenge, but I sort of tackle them in my head as like I'm writing a, you know, like writing an animated special or something like that. Because it's wow. just because like I was saying, I was used to writing scripts in a different way. So I always sort of imagine it that way. And as long as this uh, it feels organic to the characters and where they're going or what they're doing seems like they would be doing it anyway. But it is it is a challenge to like this whole time working on uh, Beagle of Mars, we're like, how, why is Snoopy on Mars? Like, what, how did yeah. he get there? What's the story of that? And sort of, we tied in a little bit for that first comic, you know, at the beginning of the right. the novel is a little bit of the story of how he ended up there and what's going on. But we do try to come up with, you know, I guess set pieces is the word. We want to come yeah. up with a few big set pieces that you wouldn't be able to get to in a Sunday strip or a daily. Right. As if Charles Schultz was, was working on these books and had the opportunity to stretch his, yeah, his exactly. uh, activity. Okay. Without giving too much away about a Beagle of Mars, um, is it, is, is it true that if you mix a, a, a bottle of soda and, and candy mints that you get an explosion? That is true. I tried it. Oh. If you take it, <laughs> <laughs> we took diet cola and, uh, uh to Buzz Market Mentos, we took Mentos and Diet Coke, and, and uh, I put it in the backyard with my boys, and we're like, "Let's see if this works," and it really does. It. Uh, oh my God! What happened? <laughs> it creates a huge fountain that shoots into the air. <laughs> it was it was pretty amazing, and I think it scared the neighbors. Did it really? Did yes. It make noise? <laughs> it's like a boom or something like that. It didn't boom. It just it would look like a fountain. It was just like it made it like a <laughs> sound of the like shock. Oh my gosh. It was. Uh, yeah. It's worth doing. <laughs> it's worth doing. I'm gonna have to try it. You know, it's it's. I was telling my wife about that this morning. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, there's. So this is how Snoopy gets to Mars, and it, <laughs> it reminds me of. I don't know if you're a fan of um of uh, Jay Ward's Bullwinkle and Rocket Jay Squirrel mm -hmm. from yeah. the 60s. Do you remember the origin story had to do with the the you know Bullwinkle and Rocky got sent to the moon. And they were, they were, you know, the first uh, supposedly astronauts on the moon. And the way they got there was through this rocket fuel that was, that came from, a, 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 you know, mistakes made with making, um, uh, Bullwinkle's making his grandmother's, you know, uh, brownies or, or something along that line. And he put something in there he wasn't supposed to put in and boom, it exploded and sent him as well as the oven and stove all up to the moon. And, uh, of course, uh, everybody was wondering afterward that, you know, the government is all, all the scientists and all of the bureaucrats are all trying to dis discern what was it, you know, let's make him a, a um, let's give him a, a big budget and try to figure out what was in this <laughs> layer cake or brownies or what it was to send him to. It's pretty funny though. I got a big kick out of that. Um, yeah. still enjoy watching that once in a while, but anyway, it's a, it's a great opening. You probably weren't thinking of that, but it certainly, um, calls that to mind anyway yeah we like we we had a problem because so much of you know snoopy's stories are always in his imagination and we we wanted him to actually go to this place <laughs> and we're like how does how, how does work? yeah well it's great it turned out wonderful and so uh it's it's a lot of fun 
Jason, let's let's talk a little bit about you. You you've got a background in theater and in writing and mm-hmm. um, creative writing, and you worked at uh, Warner Brothers for a number of years, working on a variety of different projects. What when did that start? How did you get there? And and you know how did that? I mean, were cartoons the thing you were aiming for? Was that your working in comics and cartoons? Was that your goal when you were starting out, or is it just something that happened and and then how did it happen and develop? And what happened well, along the way? Yeah, it did Tell just, the story it did of your life. <laughs> well, I was born a, I was born <laughs> yes. a young ch- child. Uh, yeah, so after college, I moved to Los Angeles because I wanted to try to get into, try to get a writing job. And I knew kind of that's at that time, that's where you needed to go. And so that, of course, meant I became a barista instead of a writer. So I was working <laughs> at a coffee shop and still kind of working on my own writing. And I ended up getting a job at a Starbucks that was on the Warner Brothers lot. Oh my God. Wow. So through, you know, yeah. And, and then I met, uh, my, my, my boss from Warner Brothers I met cause I used to make her, her cappuccinos every day <laughs> and we just sort of t- started talking and she's like, you know, if you're ever interested, uh, I work in the story department there. It's like you could get a job Xeroxing scripts. And I was like, well, I will take that because it's I won't have to wear an apron every day. And, you know, I can read a lot. Uh, So that's basically how that in the story department at Warner Brothers at that time was in charge of basically taking the scripts who are to people who are much more important than you are and script security and stuff like that. So I met a lot of great people that way. And Xeroxed a lot of good scripts and just read as much as I could. And that sort of, you know, just through connections you make there, they found out that I like to write and I got a job um, punching up a few screenplays here and there and then working on a few projects that never quite saw the light of day, all while kind of working on my own stuff as well. Like, And they have a great... Um, collection of Hanna-Barbera characters that Warner Brothers owns. Like I worked on an ill-fated Scooby-Doo project, which was a lot of fun. Uh, You know, Thundercats, things like that. Uh So it's kind of where I worked on my chops of trying to sound like characters who already existed rather than original stuff. And along this, along at the same time, are you still working on your own original stuff? Yeah, still working on my own original stuff. Um, and what's that like, that material? Um, it sort of changes. I wrote a lot of like sort of comedy screenplays for a while. Um, and then now I'm sort of switching into book mode. I've been working on, uh, just finished a draft of my first non-Peanuts kids book. Uh, so it sort of evolves depending on where you are. The one yeah. problem I noticed uh, working at a company like Warner Brothers, as you start sort of thinking about, especially when you uh, are, you know, just young and starting out, you start thinking about what will sell as opposed to what do you really want to write about? Yeah. And I've noticed that the whatever limited success I've had is usually when I just decide that, you know what, I'm going to write what I want to write. And then, you know, if it gets noticed, great. If not, at least I can sleep at night. Yeah. You know, I was just having the, um, a dis- similar discussion with Tahid Bondia, who is a wonderful cartoonist and has a big hit with a comic strip called Crabgrass, which is mm-hmm. on Instagram. And Tahid was saying, you know, he had gone through these experiences and, and the most 
after doing comics for a long time, finally just sort of doing something that he felt deeply about and the thing that he felt deeply about and didn't expect to attract readership, lo and behold, attracted a whole bunch of readers. And, uh, you know, the lesson is, is, uh, well, you know, follow your heart really. Yeah, and, exactly. And, uh, at the same time as you got to attend, you know, bar and, and, uh, Xerox, <laughs> whatever you can Xerox to get ahead. Don't lose sight of what got you into this business in the first place, mm-hmm. you know, which is your, your, your will, your desire to express something, to say something of your own. So you're, you're, st- you're working on your own stuff and uh, that continues. And you're also working on characters and, and you're coming up with projects like the Scooby-Doo movie or TV show that you're talking about that didn't happen. And then, you know, how many projects do you go through that, that you work really hard on and then go no place? Oh, quite a few. I mean, <laughs> it happens quite a bit. You know, but that was just sort of the nature of the business. I'm still, you know, in contact with some friends at Warner Brothers that we're still, you know, in some degree of development on, you know, working on it when we can. And, oh, I you see. know, it, it's, it's good and bad. It's sort of like if there's if no if no one's paying you to do it, it's, you know, you you can take the time to sort of develop it a bit more, you know, yeah. and. and and just like everything, there's so many people involved in the process of scripts now and movie making. And yeah. all it takes is one person who's not willing to change or doesn't think something is working when one person thinks it does. It, it can just really sideline something for a while. But it, given all the money that goes into producing things these days, it's not surprising. Yeah. It's it's kind of interesting though. You can make forays into, I guess, independent filmmaking. But even in, in independent filmmaking, there's still a lot of voices involved because movie making is collaborative, and yeah. and uh, there are so many decision makers along the way. Um, but the tools are there to kind of. Uh, I mean, we live in an era in which the tools are available. If you can get a hold of some things, um, yeah. You can, you can, you know, make forays into your own stuff, people doing things on YouTube and, and things like that, but, um, and avoid that whole process. If you, if you really need to, yeah, you if know. you really need to, if you and then the problem to. is like, well, now there's so much content out there, how yeah. to get eyes to it, if that's really what you want. And it's a whole other process of marketing, oh. selling and. Yeah, we talk about that a lot on this show (laughs) Uh, with with cartoonists because that's always the challenge as it is with any creative field. So you're working at Warner Brothers. You're working on a couple of projects, Scooby-Doo and and Thundercats and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and a couple of other things, right? Um, How did you segue from that after a number of years into, well, you were talking about it. You met Paige Braddock uh, and creative director at Schultz Studio and, and... so through Paige, you started working on, on Snoopy and Peanuts. And yes. You know, it was just sort of by accident. I, you know, we had just had our kids and we, we like Los Angeles a lot, but we decided it might not be an ideal place to raise kids. Uh, you know, just, you know, given, given where we were at the time, you know, it's, it's a great place to live if you can't afford it and you were in a safe space. But at that time, <laughs> at that time, we weren't. Uh, so we decided we should uh, make a move. And my wife's family was from the San Diego area originally. And my family was uh, from the Portland area. Uh-huh. So we thought we'd kind of shoot for the middle, which was Santa Rosa. 
<laughs> and uh, we just took a move. Like I, you know, quit the Warner Brothers job and decided to move up here thinking I might, you know, might want to try something else. Maybe work at a winery and write or something oh, like that. And That's a brave yeah. thing, man. That's a really brave thing to do. Yeah, it was. I was nervous, but it, I just felt like it just felt like it was time. You know? Yeah. And so, so you moved to Santa Rosa, and it was by moving to Santa Rosa that you and you stumbled into the Schultz studio. Yes. It was it was totally by accident. Honestly, I answered a Craigslist ad. Oh my god! Isn't that funny? It was I uh, was just looking for a job and said it was a creative office, and I was like, I'm a creative guy. What's this office do? I assumed it was gonna like sell like desks and furniture or something like that. But. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine? I mean, how many people passed that ad by like people who thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do that creative yeah. office. I mean, I mean, can you, and it's just fortuitous that you happened upon it and had the, you know, wherewithal to answer it. That's a, it's like, wow. Kismet. Yep. And I never stopped annoying Paige till she gave me the job. <laughs> yep, <laughs> that's, the, that's the trick. Stick to itiveness. Yeah, I guess so. In a lot of ways, uh, well, that that's amazing. So, and and then here you are today working on Peanuts characters. So, wow. So, uh, you know, in terms of um, as a writer, when you look at Schultz and you're trying to work with those characters and his themes and his ideas, I mean, what what things do you notice in Charles Schultz's work? Like when I look at, look at Schultz's work, I'm looking at it as a cartoonist and a and a uh, you know an artist. And the story is really important. Obviously, all that stuff is really important. But I think it's slightly different if you're a writer and you're looking at how Schultz writes and what he puts into it. What kinds of things have you noticed that Schultz does and taken away from Schultz to apply to your adaptations? Right. <clears throat> well, he had a he always has and ha- and like had a great use of the quiet spaces in the comic strip. I've noticed like he was known for big blocks of texts and then sometimes just silence, which I've noticed a lot that I always appreciate. He, he gives time for the jokes to land. He gives time for you to think about what a character just said. And like when you're reading this, it doesn't feel like you're reading kids. It feels like you're, you're reading grownups talking about their problems or trying to figure out what to do with their lives or, they've made a mistake or not. I always appreciate the thoughtfulness of the words. Like it's every day I read the comic strip. I have it out open on my desk right now, a big, big Sunday book mm-hmm. strip that I read every day just to sort of marvel at it. I also have a big picture of Sparky above my desk that I always look at and <laughs> imagine him saying, don't mess up Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can't, I, it's, but uh, and and then you have people who are in charge of of you know quality control and carrying the legacy forward. Exactly. Looking over you know, your shoulder too. One thing I appreciated too is like he always there's an evolution in the writing that he feels like he's learning lessons and learning about life as he goes. You know, you think about when you know for 50 years the things he learned and how his opinions evolved and changed and uh, how sometimes you know there's that great stripper linus says has it ever occurred to you that you might be wrong (laughs) you know it's stuff like that that i really appreciate in general do you do you notice a change in his style of writing uh over the course of of his lifetime i mean things that you know perhaps i might never notice 
One thing, I mean, one thing that I, I may be wrong, but one thing I noticed was if you remember like towards the end of the strip, like the late nineties, how rerun became much more of a prominent character. Yeah. Uh, I always think of that as again, who knows, this might just be me, but of like kind of Schultz himself trying to learn how the world has changed, you know, like rerun is always questioning things. He's trying to make the basket and not, he's trying to, break out of the artistic mold that people want to put him in, but he never quite can. Right. And I just feel like that's just a man going through, you know, trying to adjust to his new place or his place in a changing world kind of thing. How, how he fits in. And like, I think we all feel like that most of the time. And it's just nice to see. Well, yeah. You know, trying to figure out our place in the world. Yeah. It is kind of interesting that he focused in on rerun at the end in those last 10 years of the strip. I think you've got a point there that through rerun as a, a, a toddler trying to come to terms with this world he finds himself in, uh, you know, maybe, maybe Charles Schultz is, is, and maybe that's something that happens, you know, I mean, I'm not quite there yet. So <laughs> but I, I do notice, I mean, I've always been kind of reflective, but okay. as I get older, I do become a little more reflective and a little more, thoughtful about the essentials really of life as opposed to all of the other things we get involved in when we're younger and uh and maybe trying to understand the world through the eyes of a child is is maybe that's a very wise thing to do you know it's those encounters those first encounters with the world, whatever they are, whether it's, you know, the structure of society as it appears in kindergarten or school and things like exactly. that, you know, those kinds of things, um, the, the, how do you deal with those? How do you grapple with those? And how do you look at them when you're, you're older and, right. and, and being okay to ask why, like a young character like that should yeah. be the one like, why is this happening? Why does yeah. it have to be this way? Right. Because it's 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 only through that kind of I mean innocence naivete whatever that you know that kind of distance wherein we can step back we look at ourselves and we realize oh wow you know the society's kind of a mess you know yeah. I mean why are why are things like that yeah. why you know why are these people excluded from this you know why why do I have to be what you tell me to be. Mm-hmm. Those are all natural questions, but somewhere along the line, you know, we sort of acquiesce to the demands of the world. And I suppose maybe you're right. Maybe rerun was his way of, of saying, wait a minute, stop and think and, and let's, let's look at it, you know, innocently and with a certain kind of distance, maybe a little skepticism. Yep. And he liked drawing overalls. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You like drawing overalls. And, and, uh, you know, the thing I always love about rerun is that rerun wants to be an artist and he doesn't want to draw, uh, pretty flowers like the class is going to do. He's going to draw the pirate ship uh, the way he wants to and do underground comics, which I thought that was interesting too. Yeah, Uh, me too. And I think you're right. Uh, there is a kind of reflective quality in those later years. Uh, the nineties, the we see Snoopy, uh, acting more like a dog again, uh, yeah. you know, back on all fours in some strips and then, you know, sitting, spending time with Charlie Brown in a way that we hadn't seen for years. He was always kind of indifferent to the big round headed kid. Uh, and, and in the nineties he's sitting on his lap and they're sharing time together. So it is, it's a very different mood. 
mm-hmm. think, period of time. Yeah. When when you look at the stuff that he wrote early on, one of the things I think about, and I, th- I think a, about this a, a good deal, is is that particularly when he was first making a big splash, other cartoonists, Al Cap said it famously, you know, those kids are so mean. And there there really is a kind of... Um, almost a kind of harshness to the early right. writing and which seems to, do you find that it, that in looking at the work that that changes over time? I feel like it does change over time. I mean, those kids were rambunctious and kids. And I mean, if you listen to kids today, they are, they're not the kindest folks, you know, they'll, <laughs> they'll speak their mind and tell you exactly how they feel about things. But I, but I think he kind of evolved I mean, again, my opinion, just from a strip about, you know, kids being kids to one another to just kids being observant and thoughtful about the world and, you know, the things he was experiencing himself, he was trying to express through the through the Peanuts gang, I think. I mean, and that's probably kind of why characters like Shermie and Patty and Violet sort of became less, I think, as the strip progressed, because it was he didn't want to represent just the meanness of kids. I think he wanted to represent maybe the the more thoughtful side, things that they will face getting older, you know? And yeah. you, you notice that in your own kids too. Like I think about the things that my kids will have to deal with growing up that I never had to deal with and how, how I can help navigate them through that, not knowing a thing about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, yeah, you don't know what, what, the future holds and what to expect. And Can you imagine growing up with Facebook? Oh, man. <laughs> oh no, I can't. And, and, uh, it's, it really is interesting. I mean, those of us at the other end of the spectrum, sometimes we look and say, my gosh, I'm glad we grew up when we grew up. And, and because that, you know, I mean, there's great benefits to the internet. And again, you know, in this last episode, I was talking to Tahid and I'm only reflecting on it now. Both of us are very hopeful that Somehow or another, we work our way out of this morass that we're in, in fake news and all that stuff, you know, and right. the rabbit holes people go down. And that somehow or another, we, we you know, find the, the, the potential of the, this connectedness that we have. And, and something good comes of it. But, gosh, it's really hard to see, see it sometimes when, yeah. uh, particularly, you know, I try to hold back on, on the, the dreaded FB uh, because it's, well, for all the obvious reasons, you know, right. and I can't imagine, I mean, kids having to deal with social media because, you know, there are a lot of things growing up. You have a lot of fears and a lot of trepidation yeah. and a lot of insecurity. And, you know, you start putting yourself out there and then all of a sudden, you know, 20 of your classmates start saying nasty things about you. Gosh, I, that would make me want, I just cry and crawl into a corner. You know? Exactly. Yeah. I've heard people say, like, imagine, like it used to be when you were bullied, they do it to your face yeah. and then you'd walk away and you'd stew about it. But now like it's 24 seven bullying online anywhere. Like it's yeah. pretty unrelenting. It is pretty unrelenting. It's pretty awful. And I can't imagine being a, a, a kid trying to deal with that because, you know, obviously we've seen some terrible circumstances wherein uh, young people have been so disastrously affected. Yeah. And, uh, and that's always, it's terrible. And, we do have to come to terms with the idea. I mean, there are just some mean people out there. Yeah. They will use whatever tools they have at their command to be mean. 
And that's, you know, that's something that's totally foreign. I just don't understand that. I mean, you know, and not that I was an angel when I was a kid. I'm sure that I did. Th- I know I did things that, that I'm not proud of where I was a mean kid sometimes. And and uh, I hate that. But at least when you're doing it to your face, to somebody's face or in the privacy of your backyard, you know, yeah. you're the impact is limited. But when it's out on online. It's just where a zillion people can see it. It's just, it's awful. And the humiliations are that much greater. Mm-hmm. Can Have you ever thought about trying to deal? I mean, this is something, I don't know if this comes up because you're dealing with characters that were evolved in the 1950s and 1960s. And so does Charlie Brown and, and the gang, do they encounter social media at any point? I mean, is there, is there a discussion around those issues where the Peanuts gang has to grapple with what it's like to being, uh, to being a kid in the 21st century? There, there hasn't been anything uh, like that yet. I mean, we always, whenever we're working on like anything from product approvals to books or stories, we always try to keep the technology very limited. You know, we, we try to think like nothing pre-1973 kind of technology. Yeah. But but we do like to tell stories that kids can relate to. So you, there's ways around that. I mean, you can you can talk about, a, you know, a bully at school or you can talk about other things that I think will resonate the same way without the, um, the without mentioning, you know, the Internet by name, just right yeah. right you we, know we do try to stay away from we wanted to keep it uh simple and the rotary phone there's a rotary phone there's a uh, you know the landline is there and charlie brown and peppermint patty are on the phone and and they're you know using the landline and it, mm-hmm. and it's like i know what that is and you know what that is but uh oh my gosh you know it's it but at the same time it's it's got to appear not nostalgic, but kind of charming. And, and yeah. you know, things always come back again. So there's that, that desire for vinyl, for example. Uh, and so, you know, looking at it in 10 years or so, kids may be, oh, that, that's kind of a cool thing. I'd love to have one of those old phones. Exactly. And I think Charlie Brown was ahead of his time using a rotary phone. Yeah. <laughs> like, man, he was in, on top of that trend. Yeah, and beanbag chairs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, wow. Do people still have beanbag chairs? Is that a, still a thing? They do. They have, they make peanuts bean bags. Yeah. I mean, cause I, I, we had, you know, but it, it was a seventies thing, right? Everybody had that. And all of a sudden, of course it lasted in peanuts all the way to the end, those bean bags. And, uh, they, they came in handy <laughs> better than an ottoman to, to play with, <laughs> you know, you could do stuff with those, but, um, anyway, yeah. Cause that's, that's kind of an interesting, uh, tension, the tension of trying to maintain a kind of universality, a timelessness quality to the work doesn't tie it down to any specific era. I mean, in a lot of ways, peanuts avoids that, uh, even though looking at it and going back and looking at it, you do see all of these elements that do tie it to the 20th century. Uh, it, it, somehow or another, it rises above all of that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, so, talking about the characters now, you're you write for all of the characters, although two of the books really focus in on on Snoopy. So, and you you talked about a little bit about Charlie Brown. So, do do you find ways of utilizing the characters to explore different ideas, different points of view? I mean, have you had the opportunity, or do you look forward to the opportunity of of utilizing these characters in different 
different ways. I do. Yeah, absolutely. And um, like I mentioned, the, this, the other script we just wrapped up, which uh, will come after Eagle of Mars, there's a different lead character, uh, which is a human. And you, <laughs> and so they're able to uh, talk about things and experience things and like what it's like to make a new friend and um, just sort of how things you expect to go one way end up going another way and how kids and a person can deal with stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Are there characters that, that are um, under like underutilized that you would love to write that you haven't written for? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I love pig pen. I always try to, whenever I, I always try to put a nice pig pen cameo in, in like anything that I, any graphic novel that I write, but I mean, it's also sort of, it's, it would be tough to build a whole story around pig pen, you know, and traditionally you don't, yeah. see him palling around with the main characters as much but i mean that could change like you want it to seem organic to what schultz would have done and well I'm trying to... the word organic by the way i gotta stop doing that yeah well it's, it's okay you should there's nothing worse than doing a podcast and hearing yourself over and over and over again because <laughs> there are these inflections there are the oh God, I could, I could go on and on. I edit all this stuff out of the <laughs> annoying little ticks I have. Well, just drive. make me sound smarter, please, when you edit. But you, you sound fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not the guests on the show that ever bother me. It's like that my stupid well, voice. I think you sound fine. Well, thanks. But sure. anyway, <laughs> so uh, I was I was wondering what was the question I was going to ask now? Oh gosh. Back to the, the characters, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, thinking about Pigpen, okay, now let's think about this a minute. Maybe there is a way of opening up Pigpen, that, you know, that deals more with dry clean, less with dry cleaning and, and you know, and, and washing machines and things, yeah. but deals, somehow explores that character because you're right. I always loved Pigpen I, and I know there's some criticism that he's just a one note joke, but I, I think I there can think be so. a lot. Yeah. There could be a lot more to that character. There was a series of strips and we did, um, we did a boom comic story of this where Pigpen takes Peppermint Patty to a dance. That's a very sweet story. Do you remember that at all? Where I, I think Brown, I did see that one. Yeah. And Charlie Brown sets Peppermint Patty up on a date with Pigpen. So, cause he loves to dance and she loves to dance and it, they end up having a really great time together. Stories like that. And I'm so some of the new uh, animation product projects we've been sort of, giving notes on lately i've been noticing certain characters sometimes they can fall in just just the tropes like you mentioned of Pigpen. um they think he's a one-note character a lot of times people think that lucy is just loud or some people think you know someone's only this but like it's important for me to start showing different levels of these characters like i'd love to do a story that focused on just lucy and linus and their and how they relate to one another i mean as brash as she can be she also tries to teach him things remember in the great pumpkin when she pulls oh, yeah. out of the pumpkin patch at 4 a.m and covers him up yep, yep. There's, there's there's sweeter moments to lucy and no doubt about it there there certainly are and in fact without lucy lucy plays a very pivotal role in the uh, in a beagle of mars she uh, yeah. So, and and that other side of her character does play play a part there. So, yeah, there is that element to Lucy. Lucy, I, Lucy, I have to say, is one of the richest. I think one of the richest 
fictional inventions of the last, you know, 60, 70 years. I mean, I, I think Lucy's a really rich character and, and, uh, you know, it, yeah, there, there's something there about this, this domineering personality, but there's also that other side to her and more complex side. And of course she becomes softer as the years go on and mm-hmm. not quite as brash, uh, which it, I miss the old Lucy as the strip developed, yeah. you know, but of course the other things fill the void, you know, peppermint Patty steps up and becomes more mm-hmm. important. But, but back in those early days, I think that connection between uh, Lucy and, and the rest of the cast, but mostly, yeah, Snoopy, Charlie Brown and Linus in particular, and Schroeder, those, those people revolving around her, she was really so, so important and so rich a character. Yeah. Now, another character, we talked about Rerun and his his love of art and developing as an artist. But then there's Schroeder, who is also a, a you know, devoted artist. And uh, some of that stuff, I think, is really interesting to play with, too. Exactly. I mean, he's I always feel like he's at crossroads in his soul because he wants to play baseball, too, a little bit. But he can't pull himself away from, yeah. you know, like he's. he's- wants to relate but it's tough for him yeah it's tough for him so tell me then uh okay you've, you're you're working on another graphic novel that's in the works the, the script is ready are there other projects that you're working on at the same time you mentioned some of the short stories for boom and of course that comic's not being produced any longer right that that bi-monthly or monthly comic but there are other projects you're working on as well with the characters right so right there are other projects we're all sort of working on too. I mean, the the comic book series now sort of, I think, well, Lex can speak to it more than I can, but I think is evolving into these maybe yearly or bi-yearly graphic novels. We want to keep doing this, but I mean, everything can always change. But there's also um, the Simon Schuster early reader books that we okay on. Um, those, you know, are aimed at kids in like second and first grade and, uh, and there's new content coming, new animated content from our animation partner, Wild Brain, that we are giving, you know, some creative feedback on and everything. So we're all sort of dipping our toes into that as well. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of stuff coming and a lot of stuff out there. Like we all worked on the the new stuff that's on Apple Plus right now. Um, the Snoopy in Space shorts. We all, like Lex and I were, you know, creative input on that as well as Paige and the rest of the team. And and those are on Apple. Those are on Apple plus right now. Apple plus. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't have that. So I'm, I'm, I haven't seen them yet. Yeah. I wish it was more widely available. It may be available in schools or it may be since it's STEM content, it may be actually available to watch for free on Apple plus. Okay. Well, that uh, would be, yeah. It's worth checking out. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit about what a typical day is like at the, at the studio for you. Well, usually uh, for me, it's like we all work on products as well. So it's typical day is just to kind of come in and see what, um, like I do a lot of like fashion for Brazil. So I will come in and turn on my computer and I will see a lot of projects in my queue of like t-shirts and funny hats that they want to sell and market in Brazil using (laughs) art. Uh-huh. So that's always fun. And, and we all, you know, we want to maintain Schultz's, uh, you know, line work and the integrity of the strip. And we watch out for 
red flags, things that would not be appropriate for Peanuts products. Uh, and then after a few hours of that, you know, I read the comic and then just sort of talk to Lex about what we're going to be working on uh, today. Like and we'll be working on probably the new graphic novel script a little bit later today. And also, uh, now that we have our new animation partner, Wildbrain, they are in contact with us a lot. So we review some animatics with them and uh, give script and story notes, um, just sort of directing them as to the Peanuts way to do things. So it's fun. It's a busy day, but it's, it's a fun day. With the graphic novels, you settled into like twice a year, two a year, and so uh, something like that. And And when's the deadline for this next one? Well, this one, it, uh, this one we're going to try to have out, um, I think, kind of mid next year sometime to sort of tie in with the, it's Peanuts 70th anniversary next year. Right. So we want to uh, have something fun out for them. And it's uh, it's something that I think will be a lot of fun. It's, it's based on something that Sparky was involved with, the new graphic novel that actually never made it out of the development phase oh so we found some some old things that uh he had been working on with his colleagues i'm trying i'm trying to be vague purposely vague yeah Um, it's hard (laughs) (laughs) but it's something that um he wanted to do and i know that his his wife Jeannie wanted to do oh wow oh i'm excited we're excited to do something that's special like that for the 70th anniversary yeah, that's yeah. great. So, so it's something that's got a, con- a real direct connection to his his vision. Yes, it's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Wonderful. So we'll be looking forward to hearing about that in the near future. Okay. Um, so in your own work, then, you're, are you working on anything on your own at this moment that's personal, or, yeah. or you just don't have time? No, I, I mean, it, it's tough to make the time, but I, I do. I just finished a, I just wrote a book called The Big Good Wolf, which is a uh-huh. story about a little mouse and a, and a big good wolf <laughs> learning uh-huh. to survive. There are too many of those. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm like revising that. I'm going to try to find a friend who can illustrate it for me. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And then, you have connections to a lot of illustrators, I would think, then through the work at, at studio. I know exactly. I'll just uh, basically I'll say, does anyone like this? Who wants? To like this? That's, what I'll, that's that's what I ask. They're like, is this any good? <laughs> well, do do you have a, a an agent that you can fly it by and see if they can uh, bring it to you know the appropriate publisher, or is is that something you're still working on? Or uh, well, I, I think I have folks who could do that for yeah. me if I if they if I called in a couple favors. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Tell me about how you take uh, an idea and develop it into a larger idea for, for some of these things. I mean, for the, particularly for like, say a beagle from, from Mars, you start off with this basic idea, I think that you wanted to, uh, connect it to NASA in some way or connect it to the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. And it went off in, in a different direction, but how do you develop the story in such a way that both you open it up, but also you hold on to what makes peanut special. Right. Well, in this case, it was, um, going back, that was that Sunday strip that, 
Mm-hmm. Um, well, you've read it, so you, you probably know the one I'm talking about. I don't know if you do or not. If, I will, I'll tell you off air if you don't. But it was <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, um, tell me now because I can cut it. I'll cut it out. It's, what what strip is it? It's okay. Okay. That's like that's all Schultz. There's a Sunday strip where he. I remember that. Yep. Okay. And, and I was like, Lex, look at how great this is. Look at how sad and wonderful this is. And Lex was saying, I think. And I was like, well, here's the story. You blockhead! So Spike is one of those characters who... He's kind of an odd character, and there's a lot of controversy about Spike among, you know, Schultz and Peanuts aficionados. I mean, some people like him, some people don't like him. And Schultz himself said, you know, I guess something the effect of... Uh, maybe it was a mistake to give Snoopy this extended family. But you're you're utilizing maybe okay, tell me about using Spike. What is it you like about using Spike? Well, personally, I liked I remember my wife and I took a road trip through needles and I thought that was a lot of fun. And, <laughs> and then I realized, hey, wait, Spike is from needles. Yeah. And I just loved the idea of kind of a distant older brother. Uh-huh. How, you know, Snoopy is, for good or bad, always sort of like a big, fun brother for Woodstock sometimes. And I always like to imagine that he's got another aloof brother out there in the distance that, for some reason, doesn't want to connect with him. Because Snoopy loves his friends a lot and loves to make those connections. But for some reason, Spike was always standoffish. Yeah, and he's that whole part of Spike being a loner is really... uh, it's, It's really interesting. I mean, you've really sort of opened that part of the character up and it was always implicit in the character but you've you've opened it up for further you know deeper exploration in a way and and uh enabled us to get to know spike a little bit more you know one of the things i was surprised with is is that he's not as quite as sad as he sometimes is in in schultz he's actually maybe a little um well you know he's a little ornery in in some ways He's a little ornery, yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, he keeps, he definitely keeps Snoopy at a distance. And I was kind of surprised by that. Uh, It's, it's suggested, you know, by the fact that Spike always takes off as soon as he shows up to visit Snoopy, then he takes off again. And there's a reason he keeps his distance, which we don't really know in the comic strip so much, but you really sort of explore that territory. Yeah, I thought it would be fun to, you know, see that side of Spike a little bit more and just, uh, you know, the danger of opening yourself up to people like he he was so devastated by what happened to him. Yeah. He's afraid that something like that could happen again, especially with someone like Snoopy or somebody he loves. So he he talks to his cactus's friends and that's about it. Yeah. So um, did you catch the girl in the red truck joke in the graphic novel, by the way? The girl in the red truck? No. Wait, wait a minute. I missed it. I'm going to have to go back and look for it. Yeah, there's there's one little joke. I mean, it's a visual joke. All right, now I'm going to go look for it. <laughs> well, we don't want to give too much away. Like, um, really interesting, because Spike is in this book, and Spike is in uh, Where Beagles Dare. Right. He plays a big role in Beagles Dare, although you you don't, in this book, you really, we get more about Spike. And right. And Beagles we, Dare, it was, because he was in a lot of those trench strips. Yeah, he was. He was always the blighter that Snoopy was flying over. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I loved I, I, I actually I loved the way you utilized some of that stuff, like, you know, the vocabulary that Schultz has, uh, you know, certain words, blighter. You know? yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a great word. And, and you seem to have fun with it, too. So, uh, you know, there, there's this thing about Charles Schultz's language. You know, there are certain phrases that have become ubiquitous, you know, with Schultz and with peanuts, good grief and things like that and rats. And but, you know, they're they're distinct. They're his that's his language. And and those syllables like blighter, you know, it, it just just that is funny. It's just yeah. certain words that he uses are just funny. And, you know, I would I, as a as somebody writing comic strips and, and writing his work i mean it's it's nice to see it seems that you have an appreciation for those those words too yeah absolutely i mean i think he was a student of history and loved historical nonfiction and stuff like that i'm i'm a fan of that as well i'm not as versed in it as he was of course but just any chance to use words like blighter or bring back something that you have to look up like i'm yeah. always excited when he uses a word i'm like what is that <laughs> i have to go <laughs> i have to yeah. find out what he's talking about and I think he had a, a sensitivity to the comic potential of the sound of words also. Yes. Uh, and and like rats. I never say rats in, unless I'm trying to catch one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the basement or or you're fleeing from one. <laughs> yeah, fleeing from one. That's more yeah. like it. But uh, as a phrase to, to uh, express displeasure, <laughs> rats, is, rats is pretty funny. You know, yeah. rats. You know, it's it's got a good sound to it. So you've done two original books, and then one of the books was an adaptation from the animated film Race for Your Life, Charlie Brown. So how did that process work, and and the distinction between the two? Did you find there are things you like about one versus the other? Yeah, absolutely. Um, for Race for Your Life, it was a fun opportunity to use Snoopy again because. Like I mentioned, he he can actually think, and you can see his thoughts in this. Whereas, in the in the animated feature, you never could. So right. I knew we'd be able to do a lot more with him. And I just Lex and I sort of looked at it as a way of like, if we were to write that movie today, how would we do it? And I remember there were things that, like in Robert and I talked about this as well. It's like things that would kind of work in a in a movie that wouldn't necessarily work for a graphic novel. Do you remember in the movie when like the, there's a giant rock slide and the kids, the kids are like, there's dynamite and explosions and, and oh, yeah. funny things like that. We're like, well, and Robert was very astute. He's like, you know, something like that might work in a cartoon because it's so fast and it happens quickly. And then you don't really have time to think about it. And it's all kind of silly and fun, but like in a graphic novel, yeah, you know that's a piece of art that someone can come back to and really start to think about think about the danger of the situation and being a parent the whole time. I was like, where are the adults here? Like, why is why is no one saving these kids? Like, what's going on? So we yeah. uh, we tried to you know make it more of a self reliant camp. We sort of put some deliberate lines in there like that. Like this was a camp meant for kids to sort of like improve their outdoor skills and learn how to work on their own and work together. Uh, I needed a food fight. I think every camp story should have a food fight in it. <laughs> yeah. um, Did you go to camp as a kid? I didn't because I was too scared to go to camp. Yeah. I, I, I was the kid that wanted to stay home. 
Yeah, me too. And I didn't go to camp. There was always too much to do in the neighborhood anyway. Yeah. Why go to camp? You've been waiting all year to spend the, you know, the summer in the neighborhood doing what you want to do. Why why go go someplace else where they tell you what to do just like they were doing in school? Mm-hmm. I don't want to deal with getting up at that hour if I don't want to. And it's, it's like that, that seems to be a, a, um, a betrayal of what summer is all about. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm terrible at crafts. I can't make anything. <laughs> that would be no fun. Well, yeah, yeah. As an artist, I never liked crafts either. I, ne- I never liked, I was never any good with the glue. You know, this is yeah. where the Charlie Brown side <laughs> of me kicks in. I, I could, I could not for the life of me control the glue. It would get all over the place, you know, the paste or whatever it was we had to use as kids. And, you know, everything turned out to be a mess. I wasn't good with scissors. I wasn't, it was terrible. It was, no, anything that needs super gluing in my house, my wife has to handle. Because <laughs> I will be glued to that mug for the next couple of days. <laughs> yeah, right. I know, I know exactly. I'm a klutz when it comes to stuff like that, you know. But, uh, and thus, you know, the, the, the uh, identification with peanuts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because there's so much in there that I, I kind of relate to. Uh, particularly as a kid growing up, I guess kids do. But I guess you didn't feel confined by the film. You felt like there were areas where you could stretch out and play a little yeah. bit more with the material and not be quite so tied down to fidelity to that whole film. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I loved the film growing up, and I we rewatched it a lot doing this, but I also saw some opportunity, like uh, Peggy Jean's storyline is always fun, and mm-hmm. I figured this would be a great place to weave that in, and we need Beagle Scouts. Everyone yeah. Beagle Scouts. I want well, to crack an evil Knievel joke for the motorcycle. So. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah. I don't know anybody, if any kids today, will, well, they'll have to Google it, right? Exactly. I don't think they will either, but... <laughs> yeah. Evil can evil. Boy, he was all the rage there for a while. Are there any more uh, adaptations then of existing material that you'll be working on? Uh, we've talked about it. Uh, the family really liked uh, Race for Your Life, so that's kind of why we did this. Okay. Um, uh, and there's there's been talk about maybe a Snoopy Come Home adaptation. Okay, still, that would be uh, great. Yeah, we're still kind of in discussions about that, but I think if we did another one, it would probably be that one. Okay. That sounds like that could be a lot of fun and, and uh, really interesting to see. And so the format for all these books is like once or twice a year, uh, 90, well, how many pages? About 90 pages, 100 pages? I think, like yeah, that. I think they're between like 85 and 90, something like that. Uh, yeah. So, how many pictures Robert wants to draw? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And you have a good working relationship with Robert, as you were oh, mentioning before. He's fantastic, yeah. He's... yeah. He, like you, has worked on licensed characters from Warner Brothers and and uh, similar things. So you guys come from similar kinds of experiences with that exactly. material. He's worked on a lot of Scooby-Doo, too. Isn't that funny? Oh, wow, really? Okay. Yeah. Did he ever work on anything you had written for Scooby-Doo? No, he didn't work on any of that stuff. But it was funny that we spent a lot of time talking about Hanna-Barbera and those characters. Uh, and and they're great characters. I mean, they really are. They're they're the wonderful thing about them is they're each distinct. But so there's a new Scooby Doo movie coming out. I, I saw that poster. I'm very excited. Yeah. Okay. So you didn't have any input on that or, no, or no, kernel of ideas that that that's something entirely different. Yeah. It looks like it could be good. I don't know. Well, we'll you know, see. We'll, we'll, <laughs> but we'll see. Yeah. I'm glad Scooby Doo is still out there and solving mysteries. 
Yeah, me too. I, I think he's a wonderful character. And I, I love that whole, you know, group of characters, that whole, it's a, it's a fun thing, comedic and the combination of comedy and mystery. That was one of, of the late sixties, Hanna-Barbera stuff. Uh, I was not a, f- that whole transition from the early sixties, the late sixties, it kind of, when they, when they start working, like providing television with every single half hour of animation in the 60s, the quality begins to suffer a little bit. Yes. I, you know, you can definitely see they're going to the Xerox machine to photocopy and put the pencils on acetate instead of. And the design work is no longer as sharp as it was in the early, in the early 60s. There's a real great feeling for design in those Hanna-Barbera cartoons. And uh and as they develop into the, the early 70s, it becomes less and less, less and less attention is paid to those things. And there's kind of a faux naturalism to the backgrounds that eschews the kind of design qualities that were evident in the early stuff. And, and uh, I always felt like that was just a sign of a certain kind of, I, don't, I know it probably sounds like heresy, certain kind of degradation to the quality of the material that was coming out of the studio by then. Yeah. Uh, and you get things like Hong Kong Fooey. You know, and uh, 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 Charlie Chan and the Chan Clan and uh, stuff like that, which doesn't quite. I know it sounds ridiculous to say that that doesn't rise to the level of Space Ghost, but uh, <laughs> it doesn't. But I do like the fact that Scatman Crothers did Hong Kong Fooey's voice. No, oh, well, okay, <laughs> I appreciate there, that. There are good things in in uh, whatever material. Yeah, right. uh, you know, <laughs> you found. A good thing about Hong Kong Fui. I didn't think it was possible. That but. and this that's also why I always keep extra clothes in my file cabinet. <laughs> okay. Great. Yeah, but uh definitely, you know, so so uh I guess you'll be working on the next Hong Kong Fui. <laughs> so do you get any offers to work on now that you're working on this material and your your name is out there on a regular basis on licensed materials? Do you find anybody comes back to you and says, you know, Jason, we'd love to have you do a, a Wile E. Coyote book or something. Uh, not really. I'm not opposed to that happening, but, they, <laughs> but no, so you, your I, job, it's always, we're always pretty busy here too, you know? Yeah. You're too, too busy. So your, your job at, at the studio at Schultz creative studios does not prohibit you from working on say Warner brothers characters. If in comic book form, if somebody came to you and said, wow, we really like what you're doing with this. We'd love to see you do something here. You can do that if you want to. I think so. I mean, I think it's uh, as long as you, as long as this job comes first sort of thing, you know, we have everyone sort of freelances a little bit as long as it doesn't affect your day to day job. Yeah. So well, that's kind of nice that you could have the opportunity to do that and uh, and play around a bit. Although it sounds like your own material, like you're working on children's books now. And I suppose that being a parent is the inspiration for that. Are there other subjects and other points of view and, and elements that you you or genres and possibly that you are interested, curious, kind of excited to explore? Where, I mean, do you have ideas? You, you you were in theater, too, for a while, so maybe you've, you're working on some plays or have done so? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's always, like, you still have a little bit of that um, producer or development brain, um, no matter where you're working. Like, if I read a story or I, I hear something interesting, I'll always sort of jot it down and think that, like, hey, this might be a good... Uh, 
television series pilot to write, or this might be a fun movie to work on when mm-hmm. I'm not working on something else. And I have kind of a little notebook I set aside and uh, just friends at Warner Brothers. I still am in contact with, I'll chat with them every once in a while. And we'll talk about what we're working on or what we're writing. I mean, I have, I'm lucky enough now to be, you know, work at a great place with wonderful characters that yeah. I'm happy to, to do this too. But there's always, there's always, if you have the chance to create something of your own, that's always nice too. Yeah. So what were, I guess, what were the, what was the best thing about working at Warner brothers? And then conversely, what was the worst thing about working? <laughs> um, well, I mean, if you like movies, it, it really was a great studio just to sort of walk around in. I mean, like Casablanca and singing in the rain and all these wonderful movies were shot there. And you sort of forget that in the day-to-day with just sort of office drudge work and writing with your head down when you got a chance to to kind of like get out and walk around the sound stages and everything and think about what was shot there and all the history that happened there that was always kind of the best part for me it was I remember when I first started working there it was they had an old west town which I would go to on my break sometime and walk in the old saloon doors and then connected to that, there was a little area they called the jungle, which they shot, you know, everything from Jurassic Park to Pee Wee's Big Adventure back there. So oh, was, my gosh. Yeah, it, that was really fun. That's exciting. Yeah. And, you know, and, and just, I don't know if it's Warner Brothers, the worst part about Warner Brothers, but just, I think, the entertainment industry in general is just how much work and time goes into things that never really see the light of day. I mean, a lot of people work very hard uh you know developing and writing and you know things that never really come to fruition but that's the worst movie has no less than 200 people that worked very hard on it yeah i, it's, yeah. I always sort of developed i called it my uh 99 cent movie bin mentality working at warner brothers oh yeah what's I, that which is sort of like no matter how stressed out you get or no matter how hard you work or all the fights you have during the development of something it's like in two years, you're going to see this in the 99 cent movie bin at CVS. So keep that in mind. Yeah. Wow. That that really is something, isn't it? Yeah. You know, to think how much effort goes into even the worst film. And and uh, it, it, it always stuns me, really, too, that you'll be working on a project and a lot of time and effort and money is involved. And I always wonder, are people distanced enough th- from the project that they can see the the quality, whether it's good or bad? I mean, do you know when you're working on something that's great? Do you know when you're working on something that is just God awful? Um, I think some people can see that. I think people, I think hopefully the writers and the performers in it can see it. Uh, a lot of times the people that are on the business end are just more concerned about the numbers yeah uh, then really what story you're trying to tell so i mean it's you know or even if they know it's bad you know they're that's really not their main concern their main concern is budget and time and how long till this can you know, <laughs> be streaming you know yeah yeah right we want it we want it today we want it yesterday because yeah. it's costing us money which i guess that's always been the case but then I think in the last 30 or 40 years, probably it's become more predominant and it's the way of the world in a lot of places, really, you know, the bottom line, as opposed to a whole host of other qualities that, that are worth, um, considering along the way. And, uh, 
and it, it's a drag. But uh, still, great movies are still being produced, and great product can come out of it. And so we're lucky that we have what we have. But um, so I guess this is what you were alluding to in a couple of our exchanges, email exchanges. You used the term "sausage factory" uh, <laughs> when talking about Warner Brothers, and and I guess that that's that you know this is what you were alluding to. That's right. Yeah. You see how the sausage is made. You could, you know, I still have a little uh, PTSD as to intense a word to use, but like, you know, you go see a movie and, you know, we just watched Frozen 2 this weekend and it was beautiful and it was amazing. And I, and then I, at the end of that, I was like, how many people had to stay late on Saturday night to zero the script? And how many people yeah. had to fight? <laughs> like how many people uh, weren't there for the birth of their child? You know, it was, yeah. You must, as you were talking about sound stages, one question is, what did you see there that stands out in your mind? Is, is you ever, uh, were you ever watching a shoot that, you know, stuck in your mind? Uh, you had the opportunity to see something that was really great. Uh, Warner Brothers has this big, I mean, this is not, not the greatest movie example, but as far as visual stuff, it was great. They did um, a remake of the Poseidon Adventure that was just yeah. Poseidon. Uh, and in their big stage 16, they I got to go in and check it out. And they had the whole ship set flipped upside down. Wow. So you got to like kind of walk around the, the fake mannequins that were there on the ground and, you know, the overturned tables and this big ship. And I was like, this is astounding. I mean, yeah. it's like a lot of times you'll see something on a soundstage of like, oh, that looks smaller than, you know, I imagine, especially like TV sets and everything. But it was fun to see something like that big and, you know honestly expensive to do well yeah that's incredible yeah, and, yeah. and when you think about that it was a terrible movie right so <laughs> you know, oh my gosh wow well yeah. anything stand out as your absolute biggest disappointment from from that period like you were working on a project you really busted your butt on and and you really enjoyed and and were looking forward to seeing it come to fruition and then nothing happened yeah like it's, it's probably like my buddy uh guy named marty senior and i wrote a a new Thundercats movie that I'm kind of uh -huh. it didn't come uh -huh. out. I think it, it was sort of at the time when I think it was going to be like a direct to DVD thing, but it was, we were going to use it to relaunch the, basically the franchise and like continue the story sort of thing. We were excited, yeah. about. but they ended up scrapping that for, they wanted to just relaunch the TV direct uh -huh. uh, on TV with a different director and who had a different kind of style, which you know, that was only on for like a year or so. So I take some vindication in that. <laughs> Their idea didn't work. Yeah. yeah and, and sometimes that's the case. Um, so what was the, uh, while you were working there, what's the thing that you're happiest with and, and most proud of? Um, you know, I just, I didn't, uh, I didn't have any um, direct correlation in writing them, but we were all sort of working a little bit on the Harry Potter movies. That was a lot oh, of fun. Cool. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> and like one of the funniest experiences I had there was there was a movie called Cats and Dogs 2. <laughs> okay. That we, need, that. <laughs> we needed to write some punch up on. So they brought me in to do that. And I went into the recording booth and like Bette Midler was playing the, the lead bad cat in that movie. And I just remember being having a very surreal experience of writing some bad cat jokes and having Bette Midler act them out. And then ask for soup. Oh like, my God! Like my life is very weird. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. So you were actually there while she recorded them. Yeah, yeah. Uh huh. And and then she asked you for soup. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> Are you the soup guy? Is it, I, is that... I guess if Bette Miller asked, I would bring soup, you know? Yeah. You're the writer and the soup guy. Mm-hmm. You know, pardon me, I just wrote these lines for you. I'm not the soup guy. <laughs> yes, the soup guy's out there somewhere. But, I, I, but all right, I'll get. Uh, all right, bet, I'll get you some soup. Okay, whatever. I don't even. What kind of soup was it? I think it, she just wanted some like kind of clear broth or something oh, like okay, that. For I her, guess her voice. Okay. Her voice. So yeah, no chicken just, noodle or anything. No, it was just something to help her voice. Okay, so that I can dig. I can. Yeah. Okay, you know that's that's to help the process. Long. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, okay, so um, well, that's kind of. I mean, that's not an everyday experience, you know. I mean, yeah. working on the stuff that you worked on there, and you worked a little on Harry Potter and stuff. Um, one of the things that comes to mind now, you you were you were specifically tied to the animation studio. Is that specifically where you were? No, no, I was in the features department. So it was. Um, we worked a little bit with animation oh okay as well um yeah so animation and the the dvd branch and the independent branch we all sort of filtered any sort of feature length script including Uh animation would kind of come through us okay and how many people were in your team in your office uh doing this kind of work there was about six of us Uh doing that and um, and so you were responsible for a whole swath of things, a whole yeah, you know, uh-huh. sort of like here it was like an all hands on deck situation. We all, you know, took care of scripts and delivered them and uh, made sure they didn't fall into the wrong hands. And we would also, you know, help get scripts to not only the actors but to the, you know, certain producers and also the Warner Brothers money people and marketing people. So I'm imagining now that you are, you know, you're wearing a men in black suit. You've got the glasses, you've got the script in a briefcase that's handcuffed to your hand mm-hmm. and you're, you're delivering something to Robert Downey. Yes. Basically, basically like that. Was it really? <laughs> well, well, usually Robert, da- usually be Robert Downey's people. It wouldn't be, you know, okay. you wouldn't meet him. You'd meet I wouldn't people. meet him. No, I wasn't. And that, he never meet, asked me for soup. <laughs> you'd meet you'd, you'd meet these people in a back lot someplace, you know, exactly. at night. Okay. Yeah. In a dumpster outside a, the Starbucks, I'd meet them. Yes, yeah, so there'd be a password. Mm-hmm. You're kidding me now. <laughs> <laughs> You're pulling my leg. No, really, it was was it that kind of like you know it was okay. This is really important now. You have to drive this blah 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 to up to Rodeo Drive or something and deliver it to whomever. Oh well, yeah, absolutely. Sometimes it was that. Wow. Sometimes we had to, uh, I remember we had to spend some money on this. They had this special sort of uh, copying machine paper that's dark red that if you try to make another copy of it, it becomes black. So this is kind of at the, before a lot of stuff went out digitally. So like, <laughs> we spent more money on this paper than I paid in my rent. I remember it's like, I cannot believe that. And it was, you know, we copying oh Superman on this ridiculous paper. Oh my God. Yeah. You know, this is fascinating to me because, you know, I can only imagine my little life is, you know, I'm here in my closet taping my podcast and, uh, and, you know, I don't, I don't get out much. (laughs) Your life is also exciting. You're you're in the middle of a winter storm. I'm in the middle of a winter storm tomorrow. I have to drive to Long Island and, uh, (laughs) and teach a history of comics class. And, um, but you know, it's, it's, it's crazy, but that's, that's the scope of my experience. But I mean, you know, it's funny. It's like, it, it does sound, I mean, it was fun and it was pretty, you know, you have some great experiences that you always remember, but at the same time, it's like, you just see, these are just people working hard like you are, you know, it's so much of 
the entertainment industry are the people or the grips and the, the carpenters yeah. and the people who are setting out the food. And it's just a, and none of these guys ever, you know, those folks ever get the proper recognition. I mean, they no. get a little credit union scale and, and, uh, but they don't, we don't think about everything. The movies just wouldn't happen without the no, crew. Not at all. And I mean, they're there first and the last to leave. And yep. Yep. And, and so, so many different people are responsible for a quality piece of quality filmmaking. It's a, we always attribute it to the director and the leads and, and it's really so much more than yeah, that. Exactly. And, uh, uh, down to the costuming, the art directing, and somebody's got to sew those costumes and somebody's mm-hmm. got to have the, the sets together. And, and, uh, it's, it's extraordinary. And then in animation, you know, somebody has got to draw those, those cells, uh, whether you're, you're one way or the other. And, uh, so it's it's uh, something to think about, but it, it's also an interesting experience, and and I think it's uh, it's one that we don't get those of us living in our little podcasting closets. We don't get to see behind the the screen, behind the the curtain, too often, and uh, so it's kind of cool to have that opportunity and uh, to talk with you about it. Well, it's fun to talk about. You know what's funny is my. I loved the fact that my boss there for 10 years was uh, John Wayne's granddaughter. Oh, really? Yeah. Her name's oh. Teresa. She's great. Um, and to her credit, she didn't want to, you know, just have an easy job in show business. She wanted to work in a, in an office and do the drudgery like everyone else did. So we'd always, okay. we'd occasionally hear stories about her grandfather, which was always fun. Oh, you got, you got any cool story to share that comes to I'm, mind about John Wayne? I just, I just remember uh, her telling me that, like, when he was, you know, kind of on his deathbed, she, he found out that she, she was in college at the time, and her professor was going to teach about communism, and he wanted to get up out of the bed and go beat up the professor. <laughs> really? <laughs> I was like, Gosh. that's fantastic. That rabbit, uh, an anti-communist. I guess, yeah. I, but, I knew he was very strict in that regard, but... but from uh, what I hear, very nice. Yeah, I always kind of have this weird reverence for John Wayne because I, I think um, he was an icon uh, of masculinity when I was growing up. And I was never anything like that, you know, nothing like yeah. that in almost any way whatsoever. But it doesn't mean that when he's on the screen, you can't re- you can't find something admirable in the character who's in The Searchers. And when he's on the screen, he conveys something grand. You know, something larger than than life. And and that's really interesting about the capacity of uh, an actor uh, to to embody something uh, so powerful, really, and become more than themselves. And, and then, of course, we expect them off screen to be that that thing that they are on screen, which is is ineffable. It's hard to to capture and put in a bottle but so john wayne was one of those characters like Cary grant or like uh or marilyn monroe or or whomever you're thinking of jimmy stewart or you know uh betty davis uh any of those characters from that era but wayne was something powerful and uh when you see him in a movie like the searchers or true grit or something boy oh boy he carries it off even though you know it's phony baloney but still man could that guy ride a horse yeah no kidding you know, I mean, th- there are films where you see him in those John F- Ford films and he's riding a horse like nobody's business and he's doing, he's riding the horse himself. I mean, there are stuntmen doing some of the other stuff, but Hey man, he's riding that 
horse full throttle. I can't, I can't even get on a horse. I I'm scared to feed a horse an apple. Yeah, I know they're big, man. <laughs> I know, bite big and bitey. They're big. They're like twelve hundred pounds. I you know. know? <laughs> it's like, there was a guy who who uh, lived around here a while ago. There are horses in. I live in a rural area, and there are a lot of horses around. And this guy took care of a horse, and every now and again he took it for a ride. And he rode across our field one day uh, and stopped inches between me and my wife Deb. I mean, inches. And I was like, oh my lord! You know, first of all, the sound of the hooves. On the mm-hmm. ground, so powerful. It's like, boom, boom, boom. I mean, the earth shakes, you know, underneath this magnificent animal. And then it, it, it stops just inches in front of your face. And you're like, oh, my God. I thought I was going to be run over by, you know, by the horse. But it was beautiful and uh, very, very powerful. Uh, so I admire anybody who can control uh, that wild heart, as yes, it were. that I mean, wild heart. That wild heart, yeah. So, okay, so I asked you about best and worst things now i'm gonna uh, this is gonna be a little maybe uncomfortable what are the best and worst things about working at schultz studio oh wow well well the best well there's lots of best things about working here i mean the people are all amazingly talented yeah i think one trick is to surround yourself with people who are better than you so you can at least strive to get to their level a little bit um you know, and the characters are fantastic. Uh-huh. And, you know, and so much of, like, still feels like Sparky's around here. You know, it's his his wife still comes into work every day. We're, uh-huh. we're in the building where he wrote the comic strip. So it's, yeah. you kind of feel, I mean, not to get all woo-hoo-y, but you kind of feel his presence a little bit. So it's uh-huh. like, it makes, that makes you proud and also makes you want to do a good job, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. So that's yeah. kind of the the good thing um i don't know if there's any bad thing I, I, don't, I don't even know if it's bad but it's just like um one thing you have to remember is the characters really aren't your own you know it's like there's still so much of schultz there so like some you know something i would want to j- crack a joke or something i might want to do in my own writing style it's you know it wouldn't work here so we always have to ask ourselves is this like something uh sparky would write or would he not write and you've got to kind of hold yourself back a little bit i mean that's not necessarily a bad thing but it's just it's definitely a discipline you need to learn yeah i would think it'd be a hard discipline to learn because there is i mean i i can tell the distinction between schultz's writing and anybody else who writes in in that vernacular Mm -hmm. but and it must be really hard, especially as you've worked on a number of books and a number of different stories. Not only do you begin to feel like you know these characters, right, but you yeah. also begin to feel some sense of closeness to them. And I don't want to say ownership, but you begin to feel invested. And yeah, you're in- that's true. Yeah, and so that's got to be kind of hard at some point because I can imagine uh, where you're working on a story that means something to you and you've done something that you really care about. And then one of your editors comes back and says – this is great, but it really, it's not appropriate here. And right. that can be a painful process. Yeah, it, 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 yeah, it's true. It's, it's tough. You, I think you hit the nail on the head there. It's, it's a push and pull and, a, you know, you don't own the characters. You try yeah. not to. It's hard to not get attached, but yeah. that's what you try. You try not to too much. Yeah. But it does sound like I, I've had the pleasure and 
the privilege really of interviewing several of folks from the studio and and involved in the studio and uh and it sounds like an idyllic wonderful workspace and uh, that's got to be attributable to the family and to to uh page and to to lex and everybody who's overseeing the product and and just the character it sounds like a wonderful group of people working together and that's fantastic and i can't i can't imagine any greater tribute really to charles schultz yeah hopefully i mean we're all i mean we're all very lucky to be here but i i think we're also all here because we want to be if that makes sense like there you wouldn't be here if you peanuts was not important to you yeah yeah you want to do your best you want you know you want to make the boss proud yeah exactly exactly you want to make you want to make the boss proud and uh i i that's a pretty strong motivation so, okay. Well, I guess the next the thing you're working today. After we're done talking, you're going to go out and work on that script for that new graphic novel that we don't know anything about as right. it, and won't know anything <laughs> about for some time. But uh, okay, great. But but uh, a Beagle from Mars is going to hit the bookstores next week, and you're going to be doing some promo. Yeah, uh, Robert Pope is going to come out as well. Wonderful. The, the dynamic Robert Pope and I think Hannah White will be there as well, who did the color. Terrific. Um, yeah, so if people want to come out and chat and talk with us a little bit, we're going to be at Flying Colors, which is in comic book shop in Concord, California. Okay. On the 14th. I think all the info is on their website or their Facebook page. And what's the name at, again? Concord? Yeah, Concord, California. The this place is called uh, Flying Colors comic Flying shop. colors comic shop mm-hmm. and do you know what time i think it's 11 i would <laughs> double check the website but i think it's 11 a.m 11 a.m on a saturday morning i'm guessing yeah uh-huh. and then also that sunday the 15th will be at the schultz museum oh wonderful yeah it'll be fun so will you have copies uh, uh, on hand at the schultz mm-hmm. museum to sell wonderful yeah, there'll be copies so, there and we're happy to sign them and talk to people <laughs> it's fun that's great and a privilege to meet all of you i think uh it, it i think fans will be very pleased with the book and uh it is a you know a sumptuous package really beautiful and a lot of fun and i think that um it's going to make a great gift at this season of gift giving oh uh, well thank you i hope i hope people really enjoy it it's, we uh we all worked hard on it we think it's going to be a cute fun Kind of personal story. Yeah. I know I would be happy to find it in my stocking. So, uh, you know, one of my favorite memories of, of growing up is my my dad would, uh, Christmas stockings were like an afterthought, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But my dad would take some of his socks and stick them, you know, up. up. We had <laughs> a, a faux fireplace he'd, and he'd, he'd, he couldn't pin them to the fireplace. They'd lay on the fireplace. And they'd be these flat, you know, socks with holes in them. Uh, with nothing in them and my dad would go out usually on christmas eve you know because he said they were an afterthought and he'd buy candy and he'd buy for me he'd buy a couple of comic books and so oh, that's great uh, yeah so i can imagine this would be in there and uh, uh that's how i think of it it's a wonderful wonderful gift for christmas time and for the holidays in general so uh, whatever you celebrate uh, beagle of mars look for it and pick it up at your local comic shop or at your local independent bookstore and uh be sure to to if you like it reach out and let folks know let folks at the schultz studio know let jason know and uh robert and vicky too 
and Hannah, right? Also, and Hannah, yeah, yeah, all of them. So we have Jason Cooper, Robert Pope, Vicky Scott, and Hannah's last name, Hannah White. Hannah White did the colors uh, throughout the book, and they are wonderful. So uh, great. Um, I hope it's a big success. And, uh, you know, it was great talking to you, uh, Jason. I I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it, too. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, yeah. Well, it's been a privilege, and it's been a joy to talk about so many different things and talk about your path and journey. And I wish you the best in the future. Well, thank you. You as well. Perhaps we can talk again when the secret project comes out. Oh, I would love that. I would absolutely love that. You know, maybe it, it would be kind of cool. We could do a, um, it would be kind of cool if we could do a, a conference call, you know, and get oh, all yeah. the team who's worked on the book together and we could do a podcast like that. That would be a lot of fun. If I could ever figure peanuts out the technology. Table. What's that? We could do a peanuts round table. Yeah, that would be great. I would love it. That would be a lot of fun. Boy, I can imagine that would well, uh, not only talking about the new project, but we could also just talk about Peanuts and, and Schultz in general. And oh, that, that would be, be a, lo- a lot of fun. Yeah, I could imagine. Well, maybe we'll have to work that out. Huh, I'll talk to. Well, you think about it. I'll talk to Lex about it. Maybe we could arrange something like that in the not too distant future. That would be uh, great. Yeah, a lot of fun. All right, man. Um, really a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, and this has been great. Thank you. It's been great for me, too. Big thanks to Jason for stopping by and uh, sharing his insights. It was terrific to talk to him. And yeah, I don't know about you, but I'm, you know, I'm imagining Jason driving that, uh, that car in the men in black suit and delivering scripts that will disintegrate upon, <laughs> upon reading uh, to people like Robert Downey Jr. It's kind of a fun thought anyway. Uh, so I hope you will go out right now, <laughs> right now, and pick up Snoopy a Beagle from Mars. That's what I want you to do. I want you to go out. I want to make make your way through the snow, through the frozen tundra, cross the empty, barren deserts. Make your way to your closest independent bookstore and pick up Snoopy a Beagle from Mars. Not only get one for yourself, but get one for your mom. Get one from your pop. Get one for your brothers and sisters and all your family and friends. And uh, make make uh, Jason very happy. <laughs> I think you won't be disappointed. It's a great stocking stuffer, so make sure. Um, Snoopy a Beagle from Mars from Boom Studios and uh, written by Jason Cooper, illustrated by Robert Pope and Vicki Scott with colors by Hannah White. And don't forget Jason and Robert Pope and Lex Fajardo, our friend from previous episodes, and Hannah White and Brian Stone will be doing a book signing at Flying Colors Comics in Concord, California on Saturday, December 14th from 11 to 2. Be sure to check that out. That's uh, flyingcolorscomics.com. I think they're on Facebook as well, Flying Colors. You can get all the info there, but be sure to check that out. Also, on Sunday, December 15th, the same crew will be doing a signing and a talk at the Schultz Museum. So if you're anywhere near Santa Rosa, be sure to stop over at the Schultz Museum for that big event. So two big events this weekend coming up, December 14th and 15th, a book signing at Flying Colors Comics in Concord, California, and a signing and uh, and a talk uh, at the Schultz Studio or Schultz Museum on uh, Sunday at Santa Rosa. So check those out. I'm sure they're both listed on Facebook and you can get more info online. So be sure to do that. Snoopy, a Beagle of Mars. Now that's a great holiday gift-giving item uh, for your Peanuts fans, uh, the Peanuts fans in your life. You might also look for 
uh, this wonderful book I've mentioned a couple times, The Peanuts Papers. That's another uh, book you'll want to pick up if you are of, of more erudite and, and scholarly uh, interests in regard to peanuts. I think you're really going to enjoy The Peanuts Papers. Uh, it's a whole pile of really interesting people writing their thoughts about our favorite comic strip and what could be better than that. And uh, some of these essays by people like uh, Ivan Brunetti and uh, Gerald Early and uh, uh, Jonathan Franzen and, and Adam Gopnik, um, many of these are they're just they're, they're funny, they're moving, they are uh, intriguing, insightful. There's a lot to glean from this wonderful book, so I hope you will look for that too. I think it's well worth uh, well worth your time. And always, as always, uh, you know, a great gift is any one of the uh, uh, hardcover or paperback editions of the Peanuts Complete series and the uh, Peanuts Sunday strips, all published by Fanographics. And if you have a Peanuts fan in the family, be sure to to look into any one of these uh, wonderful publications and publishers. Uh, Fanographics has done a great job with uh, the the Peanuts Complete series, and uh, I love them. I, I've collected all of them, and uh, as well as the Sundays, which, you know, it's interesting. The Sundays are collected within the black and white complete series they're there but when you take them out and you put color to them and you print them at original printed size uh, as they appeared in the newspapers originally it, it changes them and uh, they're, they have a, a quality all to themselves which is very distinct from the daily strips and I don't I haven't really stopped to think about what the nature of that distinction is except to say that uh, I, I think sometimes he worked on several Charles Schultz worked on several uh, Sunday pages in a row. You know, the idea is you do your dailies, you get in that groove, and then you get into the Sundays and you do that, and you get in a groove for telling a longer form story. And uh, so they have an ambiance that's all their own. And they open up the Peanuts world in a way that's larger, right, than the dailies allow for every single day, but not as big as the graphic novels, you know, or the comic books that were published. Uh, during Schultz's lifetime and, and the uh, animation, which is totally in a, in a very different direction. There's still a short, you know, beginning, middle, and end and, and gag at the end, but I don't know. There's something that the space allows for, and I think Charles Schultz takes advantage, full advantage of that. And uh, they are, they're really enjoyable to read apart from the, the, uh, the dailies, you know, all collected in the Complete and the uh, Sunday by Fanographics. So check it out. You can check them out not only at your local bookstore, but also online at fanographics.com. That being said, oh my goodness, am I going to get to another episode before the end of the year? I don't know. This may have to hold you over until after uh, the 25th. We shall see. I'm not sure exactly. There's a lot to do at the end of the semester, so... Uh, but uh, we'll see. <clears throat> if that's it, then I've got to say, you know, happy holidays to you. Happy holidays. Whatever you, whatever your favorite holiday is, whatever you celebrate, uh, Merry Christmas, uh, Happy Hanukkah, uh, and Happy Kwanzaa. Uh, I hope that you, uh, you have the best of the holiday season, best of the holiday season to you and your loved ones. Be sure to follow me on Grogan Jeff. Uh, at Instagram. I'm not even going to mention my websites anymore because that seems like a futile exercise in this era of social media. So check me out on Instagram. That's where I, I update most frequently. Don't do a lot of Facebook. So 
just a little. Actually, basically what I do is just share my Instagram posts on Facebook. So go to the source, G-R-O-G-A-N-G-E-O-F-F. That's me uh, on Instagram, so be sure to check it out. You can find my comic strip work there. Uh, I do some little animations, actually, that I think if you're a Peanuts fan, you might enjoy, and um, and uh, all the other stuff. So I'd appreciate it, and uh, by golly, I think you'll enjoy it. So check me out on Instagram. Okay. Having said all that, I've gone on long enough. I'm running out of space. It's time to go. So, so uh, happy holidays. If I don't talk to you before, and happy new year. I ha- hope it's a safe and happy one. And I hope that your holiday season is a great one, filled with lots of, you know, sugar plum fairies and elves and, and wonderful little packages and all the stuff that's in that 12 days at Christmas thing. <laughs> okay. Oh, you know what? By the way, the, the greatest, okay, if you are a Christmas person, if you love Christmas shows, my favorite, absolute favorite Christmas special of all time, this is for uh, Richard Williams, the great animator who passed away this year. Wonderful uh, adaptation of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol by Richard Williams and Chuck Jones. Uh, Chuck Jones is the producer of it, but Richard Williams is really the, was the guy responsible. Um, check it out on YouTube, Richard Williams' A Christmas Carol. It's on YouTube. It is wonderful. You will not be disappointed. It is of all of the Christmas Carol adaptations I've ever seen. It's the one I that I hold dearest to my heart. It is uh, two-dimensional animation at its finest. So check it out, okay? Richard Williams, A Christmas Carol on YouTube. And uh, that's my, my Christmas gift to you. Okay, so till next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.